Welcome to the Love and Marriage Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that offer insights on dating and marriage. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. It's a great honor to speak to you today. I've known this overwhelming task was coming my way for the last year or so. The Spirit whispered it to me, and I, well, I tried to ignore those feelings. It seemed too important a task to fall to me, a regular faculty member. I thought with general authorities, President Samuelson, vice presidents, there are enough of those to speak for about a year, and deans, department chair, I didn't think it would ever fall to my lot, but it did. Um, When I got the phone call, I was not really surprised. Within 10 minutes of hanging up the phone call, though, I sat there and I thought of the various talks I'd thought of, and I knew within 10 minutes what I should talk about. There's something I'm uniquely qualified to speak about, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. The choice of the talk was given completely up to me. I was reminded of the fact that I once heard that general authority talks at general conference are not assigned. This is a wonderful testimony to me that our leaders leave the inspiration up to the speakers. It's truly humbling to stand at this podium, for this is the place where prophets stand to speak, perhaps more than any other place except for Temple Square. I served on a committee several years ago that looked at the so-called university experience. I had access there to research done by the university, including surveys of alumni who had graduated in the past five years, ten years, and twenty years. The university experience that was uniformly rated the highest by all groups was these weekly devotionals. I remember some of the devotionals from my own experience as a student here 30 years ago. I remember a talk by Elder Hinckley, then a junior member of the Quorum of the Twelve, titled The Loneliness of Leadership. It was an interesting talk and quite revealing of the way the Lord works with our leaders. Since that time, I've watched our general authorities and I've thought of that talk, and my admiration for our leaders has grown. I remember a talk by Marion D. Hanks when he said, Blossom where you are planted. He spoke of life in these times where we may get employment that takes us to the ends of the earth, sometimes quite literally. He spoke of moving to a place where we may study or have some training or only plan to be there for a few years, sometimes just a few months. And he said, wherever we are, we should settle in as if we're going to be there for a long time. Don't live out of your suitcase, he said. Move in. Blossom where you are planted. In the years since I've since I heard that talk, I've moved to Charlestown, Massachusetts, Greenville, South Carolina, Cortland, New York, Somerville, Massachusetts, Dryden, New York, Urbana, Illinois, Seoul, Korea, in three different houses, Provo, Utah, Pusan, Korea, back to Provo, and then six study abroad sessions and one semester sabbatical in Korea. From time to time, I would think of Elder Hank's advice, and I saw some others around who apparently missed that devotional because they, all they would do is moan about moving back home, moving back to Utah, moving to California, moving to wherever. I think of my nephew who lives in Illinois and grew up in Illinois, who says his ward now is full of people from out west who are constantly running down his hometown because it doesn't measure up somehow to their hometown. Elder Hank's advice given in that devotional so many years ago is still valid. Blossom where you are planted. Thinking of the great talks that have been given from this podium, therefore, it's with a great sense of humility that I speak to you today. 
I hope some of you will remember and be benefited by something I have here to say. I'm certain that my message will have special meaning to some of you, but I hope that it will have a general meaning, meaning to all of you. The title of my talk today is Adoption, A Gift of Life, A Gift of Love. I'm going to speak about three aspects of adoption. Each will have a varying degree of interest to you, I suppose. I wrote a book about the topic, as it has been practiced in Korea and much of the rest of Asia. I will then tell you about some of my own experiences with adoption and adoption in this country and in the Church. And finally, I will speak about adoption as it pertains to all of us, as the seed of Abraham. I think this message will have particular meaning for some of you, those of you who are adopted, those of you who will someday adopt a child or two or more, and those of you who have siblings who are adopted. I think my message will be helpful to some of you who, in the future, may become a bishop or a Relief Society president or a home teacher or a visiting teacher who may be called upon to advise someone who is trying to decide what to do. Your advice might mean a life saved, a life blessed, and a life loved. But aside from these specific cases, I'm going to speak to you all about your adoption into the House of Israel and into the covenant of Abraham. In fact, Father Abraham is our father and the one with whom Jehovah established the covenant and with it the priesthood. When I was thinking about what to talk about, I had been told that I might talk about some of my professional work if I chose. As it turns out, I wrote a PhD dissertation and later a book titled Korean Adoption and Inheritance. The title, unfortunately, is a little misleading to the general public, but it fits into a genre of literature in East Asian studies on the family, on the lineage, and on history. The subtitle really tells you more of what the book is about. The subtitle is The Creation of a Classic Confucian Society. The book deals with 17th century Korea and how Korea became thoroughly indoctrinated by Confucian ideology, as was, re as was reflected in changes in the family structure as seen in adoption and inheritance practices. In a nutshell, what happened in the late 17th century under growing influence from Neo-Confucianism was that the inheritance patterns changed from one where sons and daughters received property equally from their parents to a system where the eldest son, by rule of primogeniture, received nearly all the property. Daughters became disinherited. This change affected the ancestor ceremonies that were so important in Confucianism. Once they were shared by all sons and daughters equally, then they became controlled by the eldest son. This change affected the structure of the village. Once the village included sons and their wives and daughters with their husbands, the sons-in-law all had different kinds of surnames and the village had many different names living in the village. Then, after the changes of Neo-Confucianism, the classic patrilineal village became a village where everyone had the same surname. The sociologists called these agnates, a special term meaning men related to men through men. Part of this social change in Korea then, this new emphasis on the male line, meant that if a couple had only daughters or had no children, they would surely adopt. But adoption in traditional Korea was what is technically known as agnatic adoption meaning one would adopt the son of one's brother or one's cousin. It had to be a son from within the lineage, someone of the same bloodline, someone of the same surname. I have a graph in my book showing the increase in the practice of adoption. I have another graph showing how daughters were disinherited. And there's a third graph showing how these two lines crisscrossed and the adopted son came to replace the daughter as the heir in the household. 
This type of adoption was also practiced in China and Japan. But the Koreans were much more orthodox, much more precise, and much more strict in their application of this principle. There's an interesting case from China. In the preface to one of the books of genealogy, it says, only agnotic adoptions will be recognized and included in this genealogy. It refer and other adoptions, which were referred to as adoptions arranged in the marketplace, will not be written in the book. Yet, within that very same book, there were three cases of non-agnatic adoption. The Chinese were more flexible. In Japan, in the Tokugawa period, they practiced some agnatic adoption when they were influenced by Confucianism. But they were more open to other forms of adoption. And son-in-law adoption, what they called mukoyoshi, became a favored form of adoption in Japan. In summary, we can say that in traditional Asia, many adoptions were inspired by Confucianism. And this is a manifestation of a special kind of gift of life to keep life going in the family line. We could also call it a gift of love, a method of maintaining loving ties in a family as expressed in Confucian ceremonies. Adoption in Asia, then, is quite different from adoption in the West. In Korea, only a son is adopted, and he must be from within the same surname group. A relative from the mother's side was not adequate. It had to be a son from the father's side. Only one son was adopted. There was no need for two or more. And the main purpose was so that ceremonies could be carried out for the father and the grandfather and the other male ancestors. Adoption in the West is just the opposite. Either sons or daughters can be adopted. There is no need to quit after one child, but rather one can adopt one or two or three, or like my neighbor, nine. The focus in the, is the child, not the ancestors. And our own adoption case began, I guess, when my wife and I were married. Most children come in nine months, if they're on time. Our children took 18 years. Finally, the Lord took us by the hand and gave us answer to our prayers. He called us together to preside over a mission in Pusan, Korea. Toward the end of that mission, we finally mustered the courage to apply for an adoption. Thankfully, there was an angelic woman who worked at the adoption agency who thought we would be good parents. She knew me from a committee we had served on together in Seoul a few years before. I paid a call on her and told her we were finally ready. She said she would let us know when an appropriate child was available. Five days later, she called. We have a baby for you to look at. We flew to Seoul, held that baby in our arms, and our hearts melted. Most couples take nine months. It took us five days. Eighteen years and five days. That little baby transformed our mission. She transformed us. We carried her everywhere we went, and we did not slacken in our care for our missionaries. Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall take thee by the hand and give the answer to thy prayers. Through a long and complicated series of events, he provided us the answer to our prayers. We knew it was a great blessing, but we did not know how many lives and how many events and how many others had done this or that to bring us together, to make us a family. The adoption of our second child was just as miraculous. We went to Korea for a semester on a special assignment and adopted our second baby. Her grandmother had died a year before, and my wife and I are convinced, it was my wife's mother, that she set up the circumstances of the need for me to go to Korea at that time. We love these children. They have given us life. They have given us love. We have been sealed for time and all eternity, and we have all the blessings of the temple. The history of adoption in the restored church goes back to Joseph Smith. He had two adopted children. 
Today, LDS Social Services maintains an active website as part of its program of matching birth mothers with hopeful parents. It's a great counseling center. If you go to the LDS.org page, within a few clicks you can see a page for birth mothers who are thinking about, as their slogan says, not giving a child up, but giving the child more. On that page, there are couples looking for their first child and families looking for one more child. I've heard of remarkable things that happen in matching child and parent. These are little miracles, little miracles that match love and life in the most marvelous way. There is a passage in the proclamation on the family that says, The family is ordained of God. Marriage between man and woman is essential to his eternal plan. Children are entitled to birth, and I've added, or adoption, within the bonds of matrimony, and to be reared by a father and a mother. We understand that the birth mother that understands and follows that statement and chooses to give her child more is a woman that will most likely, by a very high percentage, end up married in the temple and active in the church, whereas the birth mother that chooses to keep her child to be raised alone most often does not end up married in the temple nor active in the church. Sometimes well-meaning but ill-informed grandparents offer to help, when in reality all concerned would be happier if the birth mother chose to give the child more. Let me share with you a story of one of the more meaningful experiences I have had at BYU. It is a story within a story. Every year at the start of the fall semester, we faculty have a meeting in late August, just before the new school year begins. We meet all together in the Dion Concert Hall. It's the duty of the academic vice president to speak to us. The burden must weigh heavily on his shoulders, for he must say something that's worthwhile to a bunch of people who know a lot of things. It's not that we faculty are a bunch of know-it-alls, but we do know a lot. I shall never forget the talk given one year when Todd Bridge was our academic vice president. Professor Bridge has recently retired as a professor of humanities in our humanities classics and complete department in our College of Humanities. Not long after I came to BYU, Todd became our dean, and then soon he was promoted to be academic vice president. I knew he had two adopted children. One day, we got word that his son had died. In Professor Bridge's talk to the faculty that day in August in 1994, he told us of a dream he had had. And I'll quote from Professor Bridge's talk. When Dan died at conference time last year, shortly after his 20th birthday, we held his funeral on a Friday. The next morning, as you would have done, I returned to school and to a busy schedule. But family, church, and BYU responsibilities so occupied my time that I felt I had not really a chance to mourn his death. Finally, in November, I caught a mild case of flu that forced me to stay home on a Sunday. After a morning filled with reflection, I fell asleep and had the following dream. I was in a parking lot, probably by the JKHB, walking with my arms full of books and other materials. As I approached my 1967 Volvo, the car I drove to campus for 23 years, I noticed that exhaust was coming from the tailpipe. This concerned me because I knew the car keys were in my pocket. I opened the front passenger door because I wanted to put my books on the seat. As I did so, I saw Dan in the back seat, surrounded by his books, writing in a notebook. I told him that I had been surprised that the engine was running, and, re and he replied that he wanted to heat the car while he was studying because it was cold to him. After an exchange about the car keys, Dan said, Just sit down there. I'll come up and drive. As he moved from the back seat and opened the driver's door, I realized he was dead. 
I leaned forward, and we embraced. I felt his whiskers against my cheek and said, I miss you so much. With that, I awoke, weeping but strangely and deeply comforted. As I described this comfort to my wife, she remarked that it was very natural. It's because he was at BYU. For years, one of your strongest wishes was for Dan to be a student here. Dorothy was right. Like many of you, I longed for the circumstance that circumstances would be such that my son could enroll at BYU. It was here that I wanted him to learn the beauty of mathematical formula. It was at BYU that I hoped he could develop a profound understanding of the scriptures. It was from you, my colleagues on the faculty, that I wanted him to study humanities, biology, the fine arts, sociology, and all the other wonderful things we get to deal with every day. I believed that his whole life would be changed if he could be a student here. For a moment, at least, it seemed that that had happened. Now, when I look across the campus, I see tens of thousands of students whose parents' wishes are much the same as mine. They see in BYU the one place where their children's eternal education can take place. I hope that we will never take casually the extraordinary faith they place in us. There was not a dry eye in the Dion Concert Hall as we faculty listened to Professor Bridge. When he told us what he had learned from the dream, I have not looked at my duties at BYU the same since. I marvel that an academic vice president could give such a speech, so powerful and filled with the Spirit, and I thought, only at BYU. Todd Rich, as an adopted father, might have additional sensitivities that have helped all of us to understand our roles as fathers, as mothers, and to see you as sons and daughters. I told a friend who has two biological children and one adopted daughter that I was preparing this talk. He said, you know, I've done a lot of things in my life. I graduated from BYU. I attended the top-ranked business school in the country, got a great job with a great bank, and was assigned to work in Korea. All that time, I thought it was about me. But now I know I did all those things so that we could be in the right place at the right time to meet Lori. It wasn't about me. It was about her and our family becoming complete. Lori just gave the opening prayer. Adoption is truly a gift. It's a gift from our Heavenly Father. It's a gift of life and a gift of love. But adoption is not limited to the special cases we call adoption. It pertains to all of us. The Apostle Paul made several references to adoption. He speaks of adoption as the process by which we become members of the covenant, part of the family of Abraham. There are five instances where Paul uses the term adoption to indicate the process by which Gentiles and Jews become part of the covenant and a member of the family of Abraham. To Paul, the term adoption was used to show that those who believe in Jesus become part of a very special family. This is true for all of us who are baptized into the Church today as well. We become brothers and sisters. We call each other brother and sister. It is perhaps clearest in Galatians chapter 3. For as many of you have been baptized, as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, 
Then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The vision of the olive tree found in Jacob chapter 5, where branches of the olive tree are grafted in, is another way of looking at the same process of adoption that pertains to all of us. Becoming a part of the house of Israel is expressed to us in specific terms when we receive our patriarchal blessings. Therein we are told which lineage is ours. This too, in most cases, is a reflection, is a manifestation of family creation through the process of adoption. Sometimes within one family there are some who are of the lineage of Ephraim, but there might be in the same family a child who is of Judah or Dan or Manasseh or Benjamin. Membership in each of these lineages is often part of the process of adoption of which Paul spoke. When we choose obedience, when we choose repentance, and partake of the blessings of the covenant, we are welcomed into the household of faith, the Church. We are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens, brothers and sisters with the saints. The principle of adoption also helps us to understand one complex and sometimes confusing aspect of our doctrine. I'm speaking of the times when Jesus is referred to as our Father. We love the simplicity of Joseph Smith's first vision. When Joseph walked out of the sacred grove, mankind had a clear understanding of the nature of God, of God our Father and of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Our understanding of this point is clear, and we like to think of Jesus as our elder brother. But then there are places in the scripture where the term God the Father means Jesus. In Mosiah 16 and 15, Obinadi says, Teach them that redemption cometh through, the Christ, through Christ the Lord, who is the very eternal Father. Amen. Let's look at the debate between Zeezrom and Amulek in Alma chapter 11. Now Zeezrom saith again unto Amulek, Is the Son of God the very eternal Father? And Amulek said unto him, Yea, he is the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth, and of all things which in them are. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And he shall come into the world to redeem his people. And he shall take upon him the transgressions of those who believe on his name. And these are they that shall have eternal life, and salvation cometh to none else. Here the gift of being an heir, a son or a daughter, means the gift of life. And in this case, it's eternal life. When we choose the gospel and choose to obey, to repent, and to be baptized, we become sons and daughters of Christ. It is a process not unlike that of adoption. Abinadi speaks of this process as becoming the sons or the seed of Christ. And finally, in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 84, For whoso is faithful unto the obtaining of these two priesthoods of which I have spoken, and the magnifying of their calling, are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies, they become the sons of Moses and of Aaron and the seed of Abraham and the church of the kingdom and the elect of God. This is the ultimate gift of life, the ultimate gift of love. It helps me to understand my relationship with my elder brother, who is also the father of this earth, the God who chose to walk upon his footstool and be like man almost, my Savior and the very eternal Father. Our biological fathers are really our brothers too, are they not? We have fathers of our flesh and fathers of our spirit, as Paul said. I'm grateful for the blessings of adoption. I'm grateful that one form of adoption has blessed the lives of those who follow Confucianism in East Asia. I'm grateful for another form of adoption that has blessed my life and the lives of many of you. And I am grateful that we have a Father in heaven whose only begotten Son is a Father to those of us who have covenanted to follow him. 
Adoption is a principle with a promise. It is a blessing for me. It's a blessing for you. In one way or another, it is a gift of life, sometimes eternal life, and a gift of love that blesses all of us. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Love and Marriage Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on overcoming adversity. By study and by faith, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.